This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. America has enough resources and enough renewable resources that we could probably keep exactly the same lifestyles, meaning large homes, relatively large cars compared to the rest of the world. And if we do it all electrically, we can do it at half the energy and we can produce all of that energy cleanly domestically in America. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You may remember our climate change series a year ago, six months ago. What it What is time? Who knows? The culmination of that series was an episode with a guy named Saul Griffith. Uh, Griffith is the founder of Other Labs. He has done, as part of Other Labs, the most granular look at how energy is used and where it goes in the American economy anybody's ever done. Um, so he knows more about that basically than anybody He's a MacArthur genius. He's founded a bunch of clean energy companies. He just he knows more on a technical level about what it would take to decarbonize America and can explain it more clearly than just about anybody I'd ever met. So I had him on the show and we talked about what that would look like, how you would do it, what it would mean. It was a great conversation. People, I think, really got a lot out of it. But recently he's come out with something new called Rewiring America. And this takes it a step further. This isn't just this question of could we decarbonize America? Could we move on to renewable energy? But it's much more about how and what would that do to the economy and what would it mean for jobs? And so it is a perfect fit, a perfect fit in the series we're doing now about remobilizing America. As you know, this series is about how to remobilize the economy in the aftermath of COVID. Uh, we are doing this as part of a broader series on Vox called The Great Rebuild, which is made possible thanks to support from Omidyar Network. Uh, Omidyar Network is a social impact venture that works to reimagine critical systems and the ideas that govern them and to build more inclusive and equitable societies. You can visit vox.com slash the dash great dash rebuild to get all the podcasts in this series, some transcripts, and coming in September, a special issue of our magazine, The Highlight, which will be devoted to how we rebuild the economy the right way. But for this episode, I really wanted to talk about what it would mean for the economy to actually unite behind this question of decarbonization. How many jobs could we create? Why do we think it would create those jobs? What would it look like? Where would those jobs be? How would we spread them out? Like getting actually technical so we could imagine this. It's a big job. Actually running the math on this, as Griffith has done, it is a big job, but it is also a doable job. The problem here is not the math. What we are lacking is not the energy technology or the metal or anything else. The technologies we are lacking are political and maybe they're social. 
as always, as always, my email is reclineshow at box.com. Here is Saul Griffith. Saul Griffith, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ezra. So let's begin with the theory here. You say it's possible to keep American emissions on the 1.5 degree warming path, cutting 70 to 80% of emissions by 2035, and that we don't need any new technologies to do it. How do we do that? The, the shorter answer is we need to electrify nearly everything. And the longer answer is about how we have to have a massive wartime type mobilization of industry to enable that, to be able to hit the timelines required and get the job done. And what does electrify everything mean? What isn't electrified now? So about 30% of our energy use is the oil that is the gasoline and the diesel that runs all of our vehicles. And then the other energy that we use that is not electricity is the natural gas that heats many of our homes, that helps us cook. And then the other aspect of electrifying everything is making sure that the places we get those electrons from aren't making carbon. So that's using much more wind, much more solar, probably some nuclear, maybe some more hydroelectricity and a little bit of geothermal to supply all of our electricity cleanly. And why would that be better? What is the gain of electrifying everything? Why why does that end up being the answer you come to in the book? So if the project is to decarbonize, which is what I think it should be, I think climate change could make the current crisis we have look kind of paltry, which is uh, sobering to think. We need to decarbonize very quickly. And we don't really have a vision for a way to create the same amount of liquid fuels as we do today to drive our cars. So really the only answer if we're going to continue to have a lot of cars is to electrify them. Similarly, um, we don't really have an answer for providing heat to our homes that's zero carbon unless we electrify. So it's really the only pathway that's viable to get to zero carbon. We'll still use a little bit of non-electricity for, for a few uses, but the bulk of our energy will be electricity. And the, the, what's the really good news story that's hidden in there is America uses about 100 quads of energy today. A quad is an abstract 10 to the 15 British thermal units. It's a lot of them. But just think about it as percentage. If we electrified everything, instead of needing 100 quads or 100%, we'll only need 40 to 50 to do all of the things that we do today. So it actually makes the project a lot easier. All the efficiency we really need basically comes from choosing to electrify. I want to hold on why that is. So we can keep big homes, we can keep driving around in cars, we can keep eating 220 pounds of meat and poultry a year, which is the American average. And if we just electrify everything, we will need less than half the energy we currently use. Like, why is that? What is happening to that other, I think it is 60% of the energy we're we're using now? So just before we go, because I think you're, you're trying to caveat me already, and I, I, I hear you doing a push for dietary changes early in the, t- in the conversation. Um, I, I'm, I'm pushing for dietary changes later. I'm just noting here that you say we can keep our current lifestyle. Yeah, so that may not be the best thing to do. We could also use more public transportation and we could live in smaller homes and we could do things that are lifestyle changes. But the point is America has enough resources and enough renewable resources that we could probably keep exactly the same lifestyles, meaning large homes, relatively large cars compared to the rest of the world. And if we do it all electrically, we can do it at half the energy and we can produce all of that energy cleanly domestically in America. So America has the 
resources and the option to basically continue to live something that looks very similar to the way we did, only electrically with half of the energy. Why is it half? Why does it go down so much? So when you burn something like coal or natural gas to create uh, electricity, which we do in big quantities today, you lose, in the case of coal, about two-thirds of the energy is lost as heat. In natural gas, about half of the energy is lost as heat. When you burn gasoline to run a car, you lose about 80% of the energy in that gasoline, again, as heat. So if you electrify the cars, you don't need that huge chunk of energy that was lost to heat. And if you use wind and solar and nuclear to create the electricity, you don't lose, um, again, so much energy to heat. So to just draw something out here that we think a ton about little ways we can be more efficient, ways we can cut energy usage. What you're saying here is like the actual way we produce the energy is probably the single biggest efficiency gain in the entire system. Absolutely. We basically, we have been trained since the 1970s to believe in the solutions to our 1970s energy problem. So the 1970s energy problem was a supply problem. We were cut off from the oil from the Middle East. And that represented about 10% of America's energy use at that time. And the answer at that time was to drive more efficient cars and to burn oil more efficiently in heating our homes. And that gave us cafe standards and Energy Star appliances and a narrative nationally that the secret to success in energy was efficiency, which largely came to mean smaller. But basically in the last decade, we've got the right, you know, we've got technologies that can do all of the things that we enjoy doing. We have heat pumps to replace our furnaces. We have electric vehicles to replace our cars that are just fundamentally superior in the way that they work in they get roughly three times as much performance for the same amount of energy as long as that energy is cleanly produced electricity. So would energy get more expensive under this world? Is it more expensive to to electrify things and pay for it that way? You know, that's our choice and something that I'm doing a lot of advocating for. Uh, It absolutely doesn't have, have to. It's very likely that we could make energy in the future cheaper for everyone. And when I mean energy, I really mean the things that we enjoy doing with our energy. So today already, if you're paying about 10 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, if you're putting it into that, that into an electric car, that's about two or three cents per mile. And if you're paying two or $3 a gallon for gasoline into an equivalent size car, you're paying more like 15 cents a mile for the fuel. So you're saving, you know, more than 10 cents for every mile you're driving an electric vehicle. So there's a little story like that for each of each of these things where it, we could save money for us on everything, but we do need to focus very clearly on keeping the cost of the electricity low. Now, if we look around, there is proof that that can be done. Australia has very successfully run sort of policies and utility regulation that has enabled rooftop solar in Australia to cost about six or seven cents per kilowatt hour cheaper than basically any utility in America can deliver. So there is a future where the cheapest energy that you can use will be the solar generated on your roof. But for America to get there, we need to follow Australia's path in the training programs and the reg- creating the regulatory environment that makes that possible. Right now, unfortunately, in the US, rooftop solar costs something like 20 cents per kilowatt hour and is probably more expensive than 
what your utility delivers. So we'll, we need a national program to turn that around and then that could be a large source of cheap electricity. And then if we also focus on the utility electricity sector and keeping their costs in check, then very likely we can save every American household a couple of thousand dollars a year. In your calculation, you have electricity production going up about fourfold to replace the other energy that is currently produced by other sources now. Tell me about Swanson's law here and what it implies for that kind of production increase. So Swanson's law is the solar version of Moore's law. Uh, Everyone knows Moore's law. Moore's law is that computers get roughly twice as good, meaning twice as fast or twice as cheap every 18 months. Swanson created a similar law for solar energy that showed that for every doubling in the production capacity, that means how many solar cells we make per year, you get a big discount on the future price. We need to double and then double and then double again the rate at which we produce solar in order to be able to uh, get it to where we, where we need to in terms of scale. And so merely by getting to scale, we're likely going to take you know, another half of the cost out of, a stra- uh, out of solar energy. So we may even be able to get that rooftop solar to three or four cents a kilowatt hour. And in fact, at utility scale, we're already producing around the world at utility scale solar at two cents a kilowatt hour or even slightly less. So then you might ask, well, why do I pay 20 cents a kilowatt hour for my electricity from PG&E or whoever your utility is? And the answer is that our transmission and distribution sector is very expensive. So in fact, I pay about 13 cents a kilowatt hour for the connection to the solar that is being produced at two cents a kilowatt hour. So as well as getting the right policies and regulations around rooftop solar, we need to have a focus on keeping or lowering the costs and keeping the costs under control on transmission and distribution. So I think if you're listening so far, this all sounds reasonably standard. It would be good to electrify things. Renewable energy is better. We can make it cheaper over time. Like we're kind of chill and calm today here in this conversation. But your timeline here is, and your approach here is actually pretty aggressive. Um, from this moment onward, you argue, we cannot make any of us individually or collectively a major infrastructure decision that does not electrify. So, so talk about that. Talk about end game electrification. So if you follow the climate science, we have a certain budget for the amount of carbon that we can emit. And as you can imagine, if you have an internal combustion engine car sitting in your driveway that's only one or two years old, it needs to live for another 10 or 12 years because you don't want to retire it early. And so the emissions that that new vehicle will commit for the next 15 years or emit are called committed emissions. And that's true of our furnaces in our basements and our hot water heaters and our cars. It's also true of our natural gas power plants and the coal power plants. And basically, the committed emissions from machines that already exist on the planet today will take us a little bit over one and a half degrees and towards two. So working backwards from that, the the consequence of that thought is that we now need to, at every replacement of every machine, roughly replace it with the electrified or decarbonized version if we're to stay on target for one and a half. That's called a a 100% adoption rate. And so that means, you know, next year, 2021, 100% of people should be going to buy 
an electric car when they buy a new car. In California, that number today is about 10%. In America, it's about 2%. China's ambitious target for, I think, 2025 or 2030 is for 25% of new vehicle sales to be electric. We need it to be much, much more aggressive than that if we are to stay on target for the, the climate outcome we should want. And the consequence is now that I'm going to build you an argument that we, if we do it right, it can be cheaper. That we should also be motivated not just by client, uh, climate, but the fact that we could be saving money sooner if we do this dramatically and quickly. So you say the market cannot operate at the speed at this scale, that we can't just slap on a carbon tax and put in place some regulations and let like price signals push everything into alignment for us. Why not? So the rate at which technologies come into the world is called a, an, an adoption curve. And, you know, we're 20 years since electric vehicles came into the mainstream, first through GM's EV1 and then through Tesla. And we're still only 2 or 10% of vehicles are, are electric. So that's a long, it's going to be, you know, on, if we just continue to allow the market and electric cars to get a little bit cheaper, et cetera, it, it's going to be a long time before 100% of people are buying electric vehicles. We need to drastically increase the speed at which we do that and you then need to ask yourself, well, what are the market mechanisms? So the completely free market advocates will just say you, you let these things compete. But because of the climate science, we know that the free market can't go fast enough to hit a two-degree target. It probably, at best, gives us a three- or four-degree target of warming. So you can apply a carbon tax, but if it's a pretty small carbon tax, like $20 a ton, that only moves us forward a little bit. Even in a remarkably, you know, and a remarkably aggressive carbon tax is basically the same as pushing you completely to buy electrified technologies anyway. I guess what I'm saying is we, sadly, we can't allow the market to dictate the speed with, of this transformation if we wish to do better than two degrees in terms of our climate outcome, which I think is now necessary. You say in the, in the handbook that then we need a mandate. But you're a little, I would say, vague there on what on what you mean by that. So what are we mandating? Are we saying you can no longer sell internal combustion engine cars in America and certain kind and only heat pumps are uh, you know, only heat pumps are sold to, to heat homes? Like what is in your view, what does the mandate say? So, you know, I'm more of a physicist and an engineer than I am a and an entrepreneur than I am a policy expert. So we're basically what you're now saying is is what are the combinations of carrots and sticks we can use? So the carrots that I think we should be driving towards are getting the cost of electricity we would produce as low as possible and then getting the cost of this changeover financed at the lowest possible interest rate. And that should make energy cheaper for everyone. But probably carrots alone don't get you as fast as you want to that 100% adoption rate. So then you you need sticks as well. What are the sticks that we could apply here? We could stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry in in a myriad of ways that we currently do. We could put a carbon tax on the fossil fuel industry to make their fuels more expensive. We could have things, you know, the city of Berkeley and other cities around the country are starting to have ban natural gas on new built homes. And some of them are working on banning natural gas. So if you do a major retrofit of your home, you also have to remove natural gas. They are other sticks. 
And, you know, for the best climate outcome, we need as many sticks and the biggest sticks <laughs> that we can. And so it's going to be, you know, the, the policy is going to be a combination of those carrots and those sticks. And I think the thing that's going to motivate the public the most is the, the carrot side of it and the way to get the carrots to be as tasty as possible is to, quite honestly, the scale of the transformation because of things like Swanson's Law are going to get the costs of what we need to where they need to be that you know every everyone in the country will save money. I've been thinking about this question since I read the book because it, it feels like this is actually, in a weird way, the technology at the heart of it. You make the argument that we don't need new technologies, but we probably need some very new political technologies. And while you focus on financing, I think at the center of that is going to be however one structures this mandate. And the thing that depressed me imagining it was the mask debate we're going through right now. So we're in this pandemic. We know, we know that one of the most effective things we can do is wear a mask, particularly in indoor uh, spaces. It's an intuitive technology, right? A mask is like a literal thing you can feel in front of your face. And when you breathe out, it'll chop some germs, um, chop some bacteria. And the pandemic we're trying to protect against is like a clear and present danger in this moment. People are dying. They're dying around us. Many of us know families that have been affected or our family has been affected. And we can't get even universal adoption of this incredibly cheap, obvious technology, masking. What does that imply for climate change and for this kind of adoption of more complex technologies that are more expensive? I remember reading some books, some Years ago, I wish I could remember what it was now, that the, the quote in the book was that 20% of Americans, and I think actually 20% of any population anywhere in the world, roughly believe in aliens or believe in magic or believe in things. So I don't think you'll ever get 100% agreement. In fact, I remember also a few years ago, 150 years after the publishing of The Origin of the Species, sort of grossly looking at the statistics around the world and still more than 50% of people in the world didn't believe in evolution than those that did. And so I think the challenge that you're talking about is very real and it applies to masks, it applies to everything. People are slower to move than we need and, and, and old ideas and bad ideas die hard, particularly now. I think that's exacerbated by social media and other cultural aspects. And I, I think that's why I believe more in selling the story about the carrots and the costs than in selling the story of moral righteousness and, you know, the traditional environmental storylines that it, the world will be better because we have polar bears and whales. I personally believe the world will be better with more polar bears and more whales. But, you know, I think we now have 50 years of evidence that that won't move people as quickly as getting the cost of the cleaner, greener future we need to beat the cost of the dirty world that we need to leave. And for the first time in my professional career working on energy, I can actually see that moment now. And if we did something like the wartime mobilization effort that America did for World War II, that was called the arsenal of democracy. Roosevelt basically said, we need boats, we need guns, we need tanks, we need munitions, and we need airplanes. They motivated industry to produce those things as fast as possible. America went from producing under 1,000 airplanes in 1939 to having 300,000 produced by 1945. If we had that level of effort, 
we would bring the cost down on electric vehicles, on batteries, on heat pumps, on this transformation, and we would be saving every American household a few thousand dollars a year. And I think particularly now in this economic environment, the promise of all of the jobs created by that program, which would be you know, in the tens of millions, and the promise of lower costs to every American family probably is a more compelling argument than for the moral righteousness of not burning gasoline anymore. But just so I understand you, you're not imagining that President Biden will sign into law something saying no car company can sell an internal combustion engine car in America starting in 2022. That's not how you see this going. I think that's impractical. I think you could maybe say by 2030, but the reality is we do not have the production scale. So you would have to spend three to five years very aggressively ramping up industry just so that you could make it possible to not sell combustion cars anymore. So I don't think that's how it plays out. I think it will be more by setting the policies that enable the clean technologies to win. I think placing market sticks, so ever-increasing fuel economy standards that really only electric vehicles can hit, new building codes that basically only electric heat pumps can hit, and then highlighting all of the health and economic benefits of the clean future alternative. I think that's our best chance at getting the job done. I don't think it is politically possible nor technically possible to just stand up and say, we ban these things by 2022. That would be enormously disruptive. One of the things I I think is really helpful in your work is that a lot of us who don't come from the engineering and, and physics side have a tendency to look at the climate problem and think, ah, a really hard technological problem to solve. And in reading your work and that of others, I think something that comes really clear is that actually the, the energy technologies are the most solved of the three problems. And I would say the three problems are you need your actual energy technologies, you need certain political technologies, be those mandates or subsidies or whatever your, your mechanisms are to create adoption, and then you need financing technologies. And I will say that of the three, it seems to me the political technologies are the most underdeveloped and it's the hardest to imagine what they will look like. But something that you've done a lot of work on here is imagining the financing technologies. So you calculate that the set of infrastructure upgrades, heat pumps and solar on the roof and electric cars and so on, that each American family will have to make here will cost about $40,000. It's a lot of money. But that the question is not how we're going to pay for it, but at what interest rate. So can you explain that? How does this become, how does $40,000 become affordable? So I'd like to think about the the mortgage is basically that we invented in the the 1930s is basically a time machine. A mortgage enables you to afford the future you want today, right? Nobody has enough cash or very, very few people have enough cash to just go out and buy a house in cash. So we had to figure out how to pay for high capital cost things upfront and then pay them back. So we invented the mortgage. If you think about the difference between fossil fuel technologies and electric technologies, fossil fuel cars are cheaper because you don't have to pay for the battery, but then they have a more expensive ongoing cost because you have to buy fuel. Same with natural gas furnaces, cheap up front because it's basically just a glorified oversized cigarette lighter. 
but then you have to keep feeding that machine with fuels into the future. But the electric alternative, higher costs upfront, but then the, the energy is very, very inexpensive into the future. So we need something like a mortgage payment or we need new financing technologies to enable us to buy those things. And actually, I spent kind of an amazing weekend with a couple of friends and we built us the, 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 the ugliest 40-page spreadsheet that I've ever built. But we basically modeled the average home from historical data in every state in the country, um, how much it would cost to convert the average home in each state to these decarbonized technologies. And it turns out that that capital cost, if we assume the costs we know that, you know, if we assume the cost of Australian solar, we assume the costs of batteries that we, we we're pretty confident as an industry we hit in 2025, the, it'll cost thirty dollars to $40,000 per average American home. And if we were financing that at somewhere between zero and 4% interest rates, you would actually save a few, you know, I think the numbers are one to three thousand dollars per household per year into the future. So, as a rough, gross picture of what is possible, as long as we get the interest rate right and we help everyone afford to buy that infrastructure, we can actually save everyone money. But then you probably need more than that one big blunt instrument. Not everyone owns a home. These things, you're not going to buy them all at once. You're going to buy them one at a time. So how do we have financing at every point of purchase that enables these things to succeed? And because we're in a recession or depression as well as in a pandemic, it's interesting to recognize that that 30, you know, that 25-year mortgage was an American invention of the Great Depression. It was actually Fannie Mae was created in 1936. So the federal government could guarantee low interest rate mortgages to the, Ameri- to the American people as a stimulus method to get people back building houses and investing in their communities and creating jobs. So there's exact historical precedent for a moment like this to figure out financing methods, except this time the infrastructure we're investing in is not just the house, it's all of the things that use energy in and around the house. So why should there be an interest rate on the federal loans for this at all? So you're imagining in the book, the federal government sets up some kind of program or some kind of bank backing program to create climate loans. Climate loans have you, you use illustratively a 3.5 point interest rate. But the government is telling me I need to buy an electric car for my next car to save the world and a heat pump for my next furnace. So why am I paying interest on the loan? I need to purchase the technology they're telling me I need to have. Why not just do this through grants or refundable tax credits or zero interest loans or, or something else? Why is this the, the mechanism that makes sense uh, to you? I think you have to keep all of the mechanisms on the table. And there are certainly low-income segments of the population for whom grants or other methods will, will be necessary. But in terms of the amount of money that the government outlays, the low-interest federal government-backed loan is the cheapest for the government because they're basically using the stability of the American currency and the country to guarantee that low interest rate, and that creates a huge amount of liquidity. In fact, the largest liquidity market ever invented is the US housing market to this day because of the federal guarantee on those mortgages. So 
it creates a huge liquid market without actually the government having to pony up cash up front. If you do grants, then the government has to find that money up front. So it's probably the most economically achievable um, and the cheapest for the government to, to choose a mechanism like this. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So let's jump now to, into the meat of this, which is jobs. I think the broad view is that jobs will be destroyed by a Green New Deal of this sort, right? We're gonna we're gonna lose employment. All these people are employed in coal mines and, and, and other places. Will jobs be destroyed through an effort to decarbonize America? The total number of jobs created especially in the short term, is in the tens of millions. Yes, a few jobs will be destroyed, a small number of jobs. So in the existing energy industry, there's about 2 million what they call direct jobs. Those are people finding fossil fuels, mining fossil fuels, refining them, selling them. Um, And some of those jobs will go away, but they don't go away overnight. You can't just stop the energy system overnight. So they will taper out basically on the lifetime of our machinery as those fossil fuel power plants retire, as those internal combustion engine vehicles retire, those jobs will be retired out. But the, there is an enormous amount of jobs that require very similar skills. Most of, the, most of the jobs required to decarbonize, you would call them skilled technician jobs. So you don't need a PhD, you probably don't even need a university degree. They look like construction jobs, they look like manufacturing jobs. And critically, they look like a lot of retrofitting jobs because we just, we can't build everything new. We have to retrofit our homes. We have to retrofit a lot of things. And so, uh, I think there, there is more than enough employment for everyone. And the other interesting thing is that if you think about it, the future is going to be a lot of energy generated in your local community because that cuts down on the transmission distribution costs. So it's a lot of putting solar cells on your church roof, on your school roof, on the housing roofs in your local community. 
it's retrofitting all of those buildings. And if you think about those jobs, those, those jobs that can't be offshored, they can't be done in China or Mexico, they will be in every zip code in North America. So I, I think you can say with a straight face that there will be many, many jobs created and they will be created everywhere. And then I think you have to very sensibly then say, well, how are we going to treat those workers in the fossil fuel industry who will lose their jobs and maybe are too old or unwilling to do it. And I think, honestly, we should take the approach to thank them for a century of great service. You know, fossil fuels built modern America and the American dream. And I think we should treat the people that are going to lose that small number of jobs generously and with thanks rather than demonizing those jobs and um, not providing a safety net as we retire those jobs out. So, so I really want to focus on this jobs question for a bit, because as we think about it in the series, but also in a post-COVID economy, we're we are going to have a lot of people we need to put back to work. And you know what? It's not like the economy was so great before COVID either. Not like there were such amazing opportunities for people all over the country, people who maybe didn't get to go to college. And so if we could get this right, I think it's a, a, a really big deal. So I'm going to push us into something that can be a little dull, but I think is really important. And so we're going to talk about it uh, as if it is interesting, which is the model I'm, I'm, you I'm, built I'm to figure ex- this out. I'm an expert in, in, thing, in energy systems and energy statistics. So I think that qualifies me as an expert in a little bit dull. So let's, let's go. Do it. Let's go dull. So you, you, you worked with economists to build a model that got you to this uh, assessment that at its peak, it would create 25 million new jobs, way more jobs than are currently in the energy industry to do this. What is that model? Like when, when somebody hears it'll create 25 million new jobs, what calculation happened there? What information is going into that? Why should I believe you? We actually tried to do the calculation a number of different ways. The first way was sort of an engineer's way. So how many furnaces do we need to replace? How many hours does it take to replace each furnace? And then multiply that out, turn that number of hours into a number of jobs how many vehicles do we need to man- manufacture? How many hours does it take to manufacture each of those vehicles? And you can build up from the ground up sort of an engineer's perspective. And that gets you tens of millions of jobs also as an answer. But it's a, that's not how people who do jobs projections traditionally do it. So we ended up working with a lovely guy called Skip Leitner, and he really just advised us on the methodologies that economists use to project jobs. And so what you do in the economist version is you you actually count up the cost of all of the things that you need to replace, the cars, the power plants, the furnaces, et cetera, and you, you figure out the total cost of the project. And then we have 40 years plus of data about how many jobs are created per million dollars spent in each sector. So you then take the amount of money that it's going to cost and you multiply it by the number of jobs that are created in each sector. And that's how you come out with this jobs estimate of something like 25 million jobs. So we we arrived at that answer by a couple of different methods, uh, including looking at studies of how many jobs are created for, per megawatt of wind turbine you install and solar, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we mostly presented the argument from the economist view because that is the the language by which these jobs reports typically speak. What do you think is most uncertain about that estimate? If you were, if you were trying to attack it or or knock it down, where where would you where where would you go? I think there's two things that are uh, problematic about it. The uh, quick thinking listener will have already realized that oh, to create more jobs, you spend more money. 
and that is true because you you know you're basically the amount of money divided by the jobs per money, and that's the thing. And so you could easily juice these reports by just spending more money unnecessarily. And in fact, traditionally, when people count project jo- energy jobs into the future, they count a huge number of efficiency jo- efficiency jobs: retrofitting windows with double glazed windows, retrofitting insulation in your walls, because they cr- is expensive doesn't really do a huge amount necessarily on carbon dioxide and creates a huge number of jobs. We didn't count those. You could count those additionally, but we didn't because it wouldn't be the cheapest way to get to the end result. And so there is this conflict inherent in these analyses on we could spend more and make more jobs, but then energy in the future is going to be more expensive. Then the other reason that you need to be a little bit cautious is we use the last you know, 20 or 30 years worth of economic data to create this model of jobs per sector. But if we're going to change the economy as rapidly and drastically as we need with the wartime effort, you're going to render that economic history that was reasonable free market capitalism a little bit wonky because it, you know, the, this rapid industrialization for, for cleaning the economy won't look exactly like the last 20 or 30 years. And so you should also be cautious about whether those numbers will apply. We assumed for uh, all of the rooftop solar that we were going to install in that jobs report, the cost of solar in Australia, $1.20 per watt installed on your rooftop. And that created a few million jobs for that piece of the jobs picture. If we assumed the cost of solar in America, which is about $3 a watt, we would have created millions of more jobs. But the energy would have been more expensive. And so that's one of the, the conflicts in, in this analysis. So we tried to go for a balance of, okay, how do we create all of these jobs and make sure at the end of the day we're getting the energy costs to also be lower than they are today. So one of the things you say that I think helps put this in some context is it, and here I'm quoting, simply put, clean energy technologies require more labor in manufacturing, installation, and maintenance than fossil fuel technologies. Why is that? You know, at the end of the day, it's because they're bigger machines. When you drill a hole in the ground and you let natural gas or oil come out of it, you know, megawatts of energy come out of that hole. And that's, you know, a six-inch diameter hole. To make megawatts of energy with a wind turbine, you need to create gigantic machines that are, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet up and hundreds and hundreds of feet across. And you need to create miles of solar cells. So the machinery is larger, requires more installation, requires more maintenance. And so all of those things end up making more jobs. So who gets these new jobs? Like, where are they? What kind of skills do you need? Like, who, who are we creating jobs for in this world? Well, I should also say, we used jobs models that roughly have the last 20 or 30 years of manufacturing and production, So, which obviously a lot of that was outsourced. If we bought a lot more of the manufacturing of all these technologies back to America, you would create yet more jobs than we calculate in the report. And those manufacturing jobs traditionally have been in the Midwest, and that absolutely could be true again. And that's an industrial policy issue more than, and a trade policy issue more than anything else. So the manufacturing jobs, however, is actually only a small component of the jobs. There's the, a huge component, uh, the installation jobs. Um, and what do they look like? They look like 
the jobs of people you know who drive a truck to work and they carry a tool bag and they change the physical environment. They install your your they'll be installing heat pumps instead of furnaces. They'll be installing solar cells instead of natural gas lines. They'll be doing a huge amount of retrofitting of our physical environment. And so they are a combination of skilled labor and unskilled labor jobs and 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 a lot of them. There of course will be jobs doing technology development and new science, but there'll be a much smaller portion. What I was surprised at is a huge amount of economic activity will be created by the financing. And in fact, a huge number of jobs will be in the banking and financing component of a plan this radical. So the majority of the jobs will be installation, maintenance, deployment. A large number will be manufacturing, quite a few in finance, and then a huge number of jobs supporting all of those activities in the supply chain and in the way that economists calculate these jobs all the way down to the people who make the food that these people eat and all of the service jobs. These are called the indirect jobs that service all of those uh, direct jobs in that industry. So there is this metaphor people commonly use. We've used it a few times in this episode of wartime mobilization for climate change. Uh, John Kerry likes the term World War Zero. And the thing that I think people I li- usually I mean- like, I like stealing John Kerry's term World War Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's good. It is a good term. And the thing that people usually mean by that is like, you got to take it really seriously. Take it seriously the way we would a war. But actually, we've had literal wartime economic mobilizations before. Um, World War II is probably the best known and studied, but we actually know a lot about what wars do to economies. And and I think it's worth saying in this that it looks a lot like this. I mean, you have a lot of people who are employed in the direct uh, conduct of the war, soldiers and, and other folks in the supply chain. Then you have a lot of people making things for them. There's a certain amount of money uh, in, 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 in jobs and financing around it. So what did the economy look like? Because you talk about this a bit in the book, in around and then in the aftermath of World War II, because that is another time we spent a ton of money, borrowed a ton of money from the future to do something tremendously difficult and big and expensive in the present. And so we actually can look at that and, and, and have some idea of what an economy looks like both under those conditions and in the aftermath of those conditions. There was actually a fabulous book, you can find it free on the internet called Wartime Production Achievements and the Reconversion Outlook. Ooh, that's that's a that's a good title. I know. It makes you want to pick it up. It's a, <laughs> it is really a page turner. Um, and it's a report by the chairman of the War Production Board who managed all of the production of all of the things we needed to win World War II. And it was written in 1945. And honestly, you can just go through and look at the... There's a, a small number of pictures in that book that tell an amazing story. They compare sort of what did the economy look like in 1944 compared to 1939. And so the GNP, the gross natural product, increased 50%. So it was 150% of what it was in 1944. It was 150% of what it was in 1939. The manufacturing volume of things was 280%. The raw materials production went up by 70%. New construction more than doubled because we were building so many buildings to to house people and manufacture things. The labor force increased 20%. Civilian employment went up 20%. Manufacturing employment went up 60%. The interesting thing, consumer expenditures went up. So people think of wartime as a period of 
less, but actually for America, because so many people were working and being employed doing all of these things that all of those workers had consumer money to spend and there was more consumer spending in 1944 than there was in 1939. I also think, you know, the the total labor force increased, yeah, it was 18.3%. One of the things I find interesting is if you summed up, I think the total amount of money America spent on the war over those five years was about $180 billion. And the GDP in 1940 was about $100 billion. So it cost about 1.8 GDPs to win the war. And, you know, the current GDP here is 20-something trillion. And that's a little bit less than the cost of what it would take to win this World War Zero, the climate battle. And so proportionally, actually, this would be cheaper than World War II, but it would still have these enormous benefits in terms of creating manufacturing employment, consumer spending, increasing the gross national product, the, the, the whole lot. So we, we, we have in this wonderful little book kind of a, a blueprint for what the economic recovery could be. And so when you say $20 trillion, I just want to uh, zoom in for a second on what you mean. What is that? Is that new federal spending? Is that the total cost of all energy we are producing and buying and so on during this period? Like what is what is, what is that $20 trillion? Is that all on top of what we would spend anyway? Like how should I understand that term? That is what it costs to change out all of the infrastructure. But you have to not do double counting. So, you know, People are going to be buying cars and going to be buying heating for their homes anyway. So you should count the difference between the price of a of an electric car and from a gasoline car, et cetera, et cetera. But the the total amount of spending over really you need to do the calculation of this over about twenty years because it'll take about twenty years for all of the old machines to require is going to be something like twenty five trillion dollars. But a lot of that we were going to spend anyway because you were going to buy a different car. You're going to buy a, a furnace anyway. The savings, which we were calculating, if we get the interest rate right and we get the technology costs, of, we stay on target with Swanson's Law and we keep the technology costs going down. It's not the right way to think about this top-line figure of how much it's going to cost because if we finance it correctly and we do the technology correctly, we should be saving you know, $100, $200 billion a year on energy. And that's just for residential energy alone. So that's for households. So it's misleading to to begin with, this is going to cost us $25 trillion. It's more accurate to say this, if we do this right, we can save a few hundred billion dollars a year for American homes. I think that's a good point to stop for, for a quick break. We will be right back. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. 
It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., You have an idea to buy out the fossil fuel industry. What is that and, and, and why should we do that? Why should we, why, why should they get a buyout? This may be the most radical thing and it's a giant segue from just we, where we just were. But let's think about, well, who, who doesn't want this to happen? People who currently are profiting from the world as it is. And that's the, the fossil fuel industry. And the, one of the real challenges for the fossil fuel industry is they actually have monetized their fossil fuel reserves. So those things are considered assets. So a huge amount of the, their wealth and the wealth that's actually part of the basis of the stock market is they have financed oil and coal and natural gas that's still in the ground. They want to pull it out of the ground, otherwise their, their assets go down. And so we, we need to figure out how to get them on side because they're going to go down kicking and screaming if you're just going to write off their assets by saying you can't dig any more coal tomorrow. I think before we go to, we're going to bankrupt all of the fossil fuel companies, which is the, you've got to keep it in the ground starting in 2022. I think we should explore more creative options. Remember, these are companies with a huge amount of expertise in the energy industry. They speak the language of energy. They do these construction jobs. They construct pipelines and they construct transmission lines and et cetera, et cetera. We need their skills in the new economy. So why don't we find a way to purchase out their assets at some value and invite them into the room and invite them under the tent of this giant nationwide transformation. Quite honestly, we need them in that transformation because they are the skilled labor force in the energy world. And those skills are very transformable, whether you're delivering the existing set of fuels or whether we're doing the, the massive electrification we're talking about. The other thing that struck me about that idea is that it fits into a larger issue here, which is that there really, really, really is not much time. Like, I'm not a big believer in the sort of deadline language people use, where it's like after some date, like everything is gone because you can always make things more or less horrible. But you have this calculation in here, which I've, I've seen before, that if we had started doing this work in the year 2000, we could have hit the 1.5 degree target by having emissions every 30 years. If we start now in 2020, we have to have it every 10 years. And if we wait another four years, we have to have in less than a year. And after eight years, the ability to hit that target is gone completely. So things that we could do to get everybody on side rapidly, they may have a really big effect because it's not just that um, the fight will be a little bit longer, but maybe then you have to buy off the fossil fuel industry. It's that if you wait too much longer, our capacity to stay underneath some of these targets is just gone. Like we actually don't have it anymore. Um, and that's a, a sense of urgency that I worry 
it is in the activist community. It is occasionally spoken of by politicians, but there is no evidence of it in our political institutions themselves. Let me frighten you further. It's even more urgent than that. Oh, good. <laughs> because those calculations don't count in the committed emissions. So they sort of imagine that we're just going to magically retire all of our machinery on that schedule as opposed to the real lifetimes of, of real machines. And the other problem is starting in the early 2000s, we started to model into our climate models with the IPCC and there was a lot of politics in the background behind this, but we started modeling in negative emissions. This is the capacity to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Quite frankly, we still don't know how to do that. We definitely don't know how to do that economically. In fact, I just did a calculation alongside the, the this sort of household savings that we could do if we electrify of, well, okay, what's the thought experiment? Why don't we take the most optimistic carbon sequestering cost that people project, and that's about $200 a ton to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and we take the amount of carbon an American household uses how much would it cost a year to sequester all the carbon of a U.S. household? And it would cost each household about $6,000 a year. And so it's not a great idea, but we've now baked that into our projections. And if you take that out of the projections because it's going to be too expensive or not even or just not work, it's even shorter timelines than you're talking about. So I actually now think about, well, what is the fastest we can do this? And the fastest is, you know, commit to doing it ramp up production as fast as we can so we can produce enough batteries, enough solar cells, enough heat pumps, and then deploy at 100% adoption rates. And if we do that, we just narrowly stay under, you know, we'll, we'll have an outcome between one and a half and two degrees. And that's what we got to keep in mind. So basically, the time is now to go as fast. If we go as fast as is possible starting now, that's, that's what we get. So from this perspective, what do you think of the plan Biden has put forward? I think Biden's plan is is sound. And, you know, I think plans at this point are about building community and consensus. And so I think it hits all the right points and, and tells everyone that they have a role. But I wouldn't describe it as a, a detailed plan. It's the a right level of effort for a presidential plan. So FDR said, I want to win the war. But then he called Nudzen and the industrialists of Detroit and said, come and make a plan that actually hits our target. So I think in, cer in terms of directionality, the Biden plan is great. And it, it recognizes that we need, to, we need to fix agriculture, we need to fix our vehicle system, we need to fix our energy system, and it sets a, a target. I'd like to bring the target a little bit forward from 2050 and a little more ambition. I think there's always room for more ambition here. But I think what the Biden team haven't yet really picked up is on the, the, the American public want to be sold on the heroicism and on the what we have to win. And I think we can still do better on, you know, if we do this right, we, we can save money. If we do this right, we will lead the world. And so I think the plan is sound, but it needs an awful lot more detail. And I think it could be even better in its communications because I, I genuinely believe we have the opportunity to to make the country much, much more prosperous while doing this aggressively. 
I'm so appreciative that you mentioned agricultural emissions and ambition here, because now I get to, to take my, my point of personal privilege and push on the meat question a little bit. Although the Biden, the, the Biden they don't, they don't agriculture do they don't question, meat. They, yes. they don't touch meat. No, no, meat, no. Meat, yeah, <laughs> Nobody meat, does. meat is a third rail. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to talk about it for that reason a bit, which is, so my basic, sen- my basic understanding of the math here is that agricultural emissions are about um, 25% of total human emissions. The studies I've seen suggest that switching from meat to plant-based diets would cut about 50% of that. In America, we'd cut about 65% of that because we're so meat-heavy. One of the things I like about your book is that this focus on, well, what can we do now? What do we have the technology to do? And so there's this idea of if you're going to replace a car, replace it electric. If you're going to um, replace a furnace, replace it with a heat pump. If you're going to build a new house, replace, um, make sure it has solar on the roof. And it's just always weird to me that we're so resistant to saying, hey, maybe replace a couple meals a week with perfectly delicious vegetarian meals, maybe pack PB&J as opposed to um, you know, Turkey and, and, and Swiss, that there's a, as you say, it's got this weird third rail characteristic, even though I think objectively, a lot of the other changes we're asking people to make here are harder, they're more expensive, they're bigger, they're more complicated, they require installation. We, we seem to be in this weird cultural space where we can't touch in some ways what would like be the, one of the easiest things people could do to make a difference and where we don't even want to mention it really. I think we might be about to agree not to agree on this one. And I think it's an in, in, a really incredible topic. But let's, let me say a little bit about your first number, 25% of emissions is agriculture. Well, it's, um, I've just pulled up the EPA millions of tons of CO2 equivalent by detailed sector chart. About 3% of our emissions are enteric fermentation. So this is the cows and the sheep burping and farting with the pigs. And that is directly relatable to meat. Twice that amount of emissions comes from nitrous oxide being managed poorly in soil management. So the way we treat the soils and the way we do agriculture and the way we do fertilizing today is is twice the problem of the cow guts. If you're going to pick on something like meat, I should point out to you that our emissions from landfills, so the trash that you throw out is half of the emissions of the cow farts. So just for perspective, there are other thing, dumb things we do like throw out so much trash and then let it degenerate in landfill that are a problem. And then manure management, so we create an awful lot of poo, creates a huge amount of emissions. If we do manure management well, we can actually turn all of that manure into fuels and we will need some liquid fuels in the future. So I think 25% is misleading because meat is far less than that 25%. Yeah, so 25% is all agriculture. And I should say, I'll never right. argue emissions with you. Um, I asked people okay. who study this and they <laughs> directed me to this science article from 2018 called Reducing Foods Environmental Impacts Through Producers and Consumers. Um, and it looks at a l- large range of different uh, food products and land use stuff. And it may all be wrong. That's always possible. Um, but but I'm, I'm pulling it from there. I'll put the link to that study in the show notes. No, I, I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think those things are wrong, and I'm not an advocate for us conti- uh, continuing industrial meat manufacture the way we do it. I think it has a huge number of problems, environmental, moral, and otherwise. But I think meat eating is so cultural that it's difficult to lead with that. I put this in the category of things that will succumb to technology and changes of practice over the next two decades, and it's not 
our, it, I don't think it should be our highest priority. I think in America, our highest priority should be not importing Brazilian meat at all. And, you know, because Brazilian beef comes with a slice of burning rainforest. And it should be about developing the best, you know, America leading the world as it did through the 20th century in world leading best agricultural practices. I, there are a lot of people who know, who, who believe strongly that we can absorb a huge amount of carbon in our soils. And in fact, managed grazing is part of that picture. Do I think we continue the levels, the continue the levels of meat we have in our current diet? No. Do I think we have to go to zero? No. Do I think soils are part of the solution? Absolutely. And do I think this is the highest priority? I think fixing our energy system is cheaper and easier and less culturally difficult. And so a lot of thoughts on that. And I thoroughly support all of my friends who are vegan and vegetarian. I don't quite have the discipline to do it myself. I'm down to about one meat meal a week and that feels good for me, but I think that's going to feel different to different people. I very much, by the way, by the the too culturally difficult. I would never tell a politician to say anything I am saying right here, but it, but it is one of these things, right? Where what you're what you're doing, I think, is actually the way. Look, I'm vegan. I don't eat meat, but no, nobody's going to become vegan to a first approximation. It's a it's a unusual lifestyle choice. Um, although, if you're thinking about it, you definitely should. It's great. You get to feel all this. Um, you get to have all these weird conversations where people ask you why you don't eat meat. But um, it's not a hard thing to cut, and uh, you know, so you're eating half as much would would, would be a big deal. But I agree with something you said there, which is that if this is going to succumb to anything, it will be technological change. So one of the things you do in your book is you focus really intensely on what we have now, what we can do now, what technologies are available to roll out. That's also the argument I'm making a little bit in the meat thing. But as we're talking about this, like because I don't think people are going to go vegan, like my big priority in that space is that we spend a lot of time funding um, plant-based meats. But if you know, Joe Biden came to you and said, in our big climate package, we're going to have however many billions of dollars to invest in moonshot technologies, where, you know, separate from all the things you're recommending we do with the existing technologies, where would you want to see those investments? What, what, what should we be trying to invent that we don't have that you think has a chance of success? So it's interesting. There's sort of science breakthroughs and there's engineering breakthroughs. I'm hoping that we spend a lot more money on engineering. So that's modest improvements to what we know how to do year over year in cost and performance. And I hope that's where the, the, the giant share of the federal money and research money goes because I think that's what climate change will yield to. Additionally, we should be doing the science projects that potentially change the game. So science project that would change the game is doubling the cycle life of batteries or doubling the efficiency of solar cells. That makes either one of those things makes everything enormously easier. Nuclear power that doesn't need so much water to cool it and solve the safety issues would be fabulous. Fusion would be tremendous. One of the largest stores of carbon in the world is our soils. We need to figure out how to make agriculture carbon negative, not carbon positive. So I think that is, that is a, there's a whole lot of moonshots under that. The other thing we need to do, it doesn't sound terribly sexy, but we need to improve our heat pumps and we need to improve our refrigerants. About 7% of global emissions are from refrigerant links from the, the air conditioners in our homes and in our cars. 
So we need to figure out how to, and, you know, we know pathways, but we, we need a big focus on that because we're actually going to increase the number of air conditioners. And in fact, the heat pumps that we keep referring to when we're going to replace our furnaces are glorified uh, air conditioners. And if we do it with today's technology, we don't win. So we, we need to fix that problem. And that's a big science project as well. Then I think we need to look at the big industrial emitters. So that's things like iron and steel and aluminum and cement. And we need to figure out ways to make our material economy and the big players in our material economy absorb carbon rather than emit carbon. And so they are things that won't happen immediately. We don't have, you know, maybe we have the idea for aluminum, but we don't yet have all the answers for steel and all the answers for cement. So we need to make those problems yield by throwing science money at it. So I think that's a good place to end. So the book you've written that we've been talking about here, you can uh, download for free uh, as part of the Rewiring America initiative. I'll put that in the uh, show notes. But you've been writing this book. You've been um, turning it into an even bigger book with MIT Press. You got any book recommendations for the audience? Well, read my book, of course, but you should absolutely... uh read books on cement and figure out how to make cement absorb carbon dioxide and somebody will do great. And, you know, we need everyone in your audience to become an innovator. We need someone to figure out how to do farming better. I've been, I've been reading a lot of books on how to try and make even meat farming better in terms of carbon. So I, I think there's a lot of books to read there. Um, honestly, a, a couple of books that had a huge influence on me. One was um, The History of Debt by David Graeber. That's what really got me thinking about finance and money and, and, and what really is an interest rate and what really is money and what really is finance. And the fact that, you know, as a humanity, we, we have some agency in determining that. And that's what made me believe that what we need more than anything else here is to, is to get our interest rates right and believe in our future and invest in our future. And that that is enough to get our costs to where they need to be. Saul Griffith, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. That was great. Thank you to Saul Griffith for being here. His handbook can be downloaded for free. Uh, I mentioned it a couple times here, but at rewiringamerica.org, it's worth a read um, and you can get it for free uh, if you sign up with them. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at box.com. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffy Geld for producing, and to Omidyar Network for supporting us in this project. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>